From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 48, Mr. Walter Bull of the Kittitas Valley. Mr. John Bull and Sarah Fish Bull welcomed their first child, Walter Alvador Bull, on the 20th of June, 1838. When young Walter Bull was just 10 years old, his family moved to Racine, Wisconsin, where his father worked in the shipping trade on the Great Lakes. Walter had two younger siblings, Lewis and Charles, with 1850 census records showing the family of five living in Racine, with Walter's uncle also staying with them. Walter stayed with his family until he was 20 years old. Then he made his way to the big city of New York in 1858 to venture out of the woods of Wisconsin to see the world for himself. His activities there are undocumented for the next three years, but once the Civil War breaks out in 1861, Walter Bull was either conscripted or enlisted and went on to serve throughout the Civil War for the Union with the Army's Quartermaster Department and managed to make it through the entirety of the bloodiest conflict of the nation's history, unscathed and unwounded. Following the surrender of General Lee at Appomattox in April of 1865, Mr. Walter Bull then went on to work for the Freedmen's Bureau, which was technically called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. This agency of the War Department was established in March of 1865 by Congress to help millions of former black slaves and poor whites in the South in the aftermath of the Civil War. The Freedmen's Bureau provided food, housing, and medical aid, established schools, and offered legal assistance. It also attempted to settle former slaves on land confiscated or abandoned during the war. However, the Bureau was prevented from fully carrying out its programs due to a shortage of funds and personnel, along with the politics of race and reconstruction. Intended as a temporary agency to last the duration of the war and one year afterward, the Bureau was placed under the authority of the War Department and the majority of its original employees were Civil War soldiers. In January of 1866, Mr. Bull was appointed to be the head of a home colony located in Alabama, which was a position of considerable authority since these home colonies were vital to Reconstruction efforts in the South. To assist freed slaves, the Bureau established what were called home colonies in the former Confederate states. The Bureau in Alabama set aside land for home colonies, which served as employment and training centers for freedmen living there. Unlike other southern home colonies, those in Alabama were not self-sufficient. The Bureau established hospitals and also used the home colonies as distribution centers for clothes, rations, seeds, and tools. At the home colonies, the Bureau also processed claims and organized services for the infirm, orphans, and the elderly. From 1865 to 1867, when massive crop failures and epidemics devastated Alabama, the Bureau made an effort to stave off malnutrition and starvation by making distribution of rations a priority. Mr. Bull would eventually leave the Freedmen's Bureau and found work as a contractor working on the Union Pacific Railroad. He was in charge of a crew of men that helped to lay track west to meet up with the Central Pacific Railroad, eventually at Promontory, Utah. Mr. Bull was actually there that day when the ceremonial last bike was driven into the first transcontinental railroad in the nation. He later admitted in a letter to his mother that it wasn't much, but it sure was better and easier than his last gig. 
He oversaw about 50 guys as they worked to grade the land to a more suitable grade for trains since they were only really able to handle grades of only 2% or less at the time. He told of his plans for his future in a letter he wrote on the 30th of May, 1869 to his mother that he formally signed, very respectfully, Walter A. Bull. The letter read, I am going overland with some teams. There is nothing new in this part of the country. Most all the men who were working on the UP have gone east and then men who worked on the CP have gone west. I want to see what kind of country Oregon is. If it suits me, I shall try and get me a little farm or will try and get into some kind of job there. I expect it will take me two months to go through by land. There is a young man named Thomas Haley that is going through with me. There is eight or ten of us altogether that is going. Expect to start in a day or two. It's unclear as to where the other members, all unidentified, that made up the traveling party that he described to his mother wound up at. It is known, however, that Mr. Bull and his friend and fellow railroad worker, Mr. Thomas Haley, made the westward move in 1869 and they both made it to Washington Territory, to the Kittitas Valley to be exact. There are two versions that are told of how the two wound up there. Several sources do not elaborate any further, but do state on the way west to help build a road from Portland to Tacoma, the men came upon the Kittitas Valley and immediately fell in love with the place and felt no more need to continue their travels on to Portland. A more detailed account that was published in the Ellensburg Daily Record in 1955 states that Bull and Haley went to the Dalles, Oregon in 1869. While in that boomtown along the banks of the mighty Columbia River, Mr. Bull and Mr. Haley began to hear word from the numerous freight wagon trains that passed through that cattlemen were prospering mightily, and soon the two were talking of nothing else. They saw the dust and heard the tales from the men that had previously made this journey through the Yakima and Kittitas Valley and over the Caribou to British Columbia. They decided to head out and rode over trails across the Klickitat and the Saddis to Kittitas. When Tom Haley first saw the valley, he always said he saw nothing. There was nothing to see except miles of grass and lines of trees lining the banks and creeks of the rivers and streams. Mr. Walter Bull was apparently equally taken with the landscape, though his feelings were never recorded for us to know today. But he must have liked the place because both him and Haley called the Kittitas Valley home. There, they joined about 12 other families and bachelors who had beat them to the punch in setting up homesteads there, but it was not by much time at all. A famed 1904 illustrated history of the valley places their arrival to the 5th of July, 1869, but this appears to be far too accurate, and there are no other sources that back up this claim. But one can assume that they arrived sometime in the summer of 69, 1869 that is. Sorry, Brian Adams. Mr. Walter Bull was ready to settle down by the time he reached the Kittitas Valley, so he took a 160-acre homestead that was near Nanium Creek, often spelled Nanum in older accounts of the area, which is just east of today's Ellensburg. Eventually, the farm that Mr. Bull established would grow to be the largest in all of Kittitas Valley. Mr. Haley, on the other hand, became convinced by the talk of money to be made in the business of moving livestock. He soon went into business as a cattle broker and went on to drive herds from Oregon up to the Kittitas Valley to fatten them up on the rich and abundant grasslands that made the valley perfect for cattlemen. Once the cattle had sufficiently bulked up, Mr. Haley would then drive them across the Cascades to Puget Sound markets. It wasn't until nearly a decade later that he settled down on his own homestead claim east of Ellensburg near his good old friend Mr. Walter Bull. The Yakima tribe had ceded to the federal government vast amounts of land in 1855 after they had signed a treaty during the Walla Walla Council of the same year. Among that massive amount of land that was ceded was the entirety of the Kittitas Valley. It's actually unknown where the word Kittitas comes from and what it means. But in different dialects of native languages, Kittitas and other closely related words actually mean quite different things. 
From white chalk to shale rock to shoal people to land of plenty. The Kittitas Band of the Yakima, or the Upper Yakima, had only established permanent settlements in the valley in the early 1700s. Before this permanent settlement, though, several bands of Native Americans had come to the valley seasonally to dig camas and or coos, which is a route that was used to make bread. Alexander Ross is widely considered to be one of the first Europeans to enter the Kittitas Valley, and when he did so back in 1814, he came upon a large gathering of natives, which he described. This mammoth camp could not have contained less than 3,000 men, exclusive of women and children, and triple that number of horses. It was a grand and imposing sight in the wilderness, covering more than six miles in every direction. Councils, root gathering, hunting, horse racing, foot racing, gambling, singing, dancing, drumming, yelling, and a thousand other things which I cannot mention were going on around us. To the north, the valley is bounded by the Stewart Ridge, which is part of the enchantments. To the west, it's bounded by the imposing Cascade Mountains while to the east it is bounded by the Saddle Mountains and the Manistash and Mtanum Ridges. By the time the Native Americans had been forced onto reservations, the Kittitas Valley was opened up for homesteading and just laid in wait to be used for the cattlemen that would soon be arriving. A.J. Splon would first visit the valley over 160 years ago in 1861. He described it as, This valley, as it looked to me that day, was the loveliest spot I had ever seen. To the west, the Great Cascade Range. To the northwest, the needle peaks of the Pishpishashtan stood as silent sentinels over the beautiful dell below, where the Yakima wound its way the length of the valley and disappeared down the Grand Canyon. From the mountains to the north flowed many smaller streams, while the plain was dotted here and there with groves and thickly carpeted with grass. It was truly the land of plenty. I'll get more into the history of Ellensburg when I revisit the Ellensburg Fire of 1889 in episode 52, but I thought now would be a good time to share the broader history of the Kittitas Valley since Mr. Bull settled there and not technically in Ellensburg, though he would be regarded as one of its first great success stories, though his story doesn't quite end on that note. Anyways, within three years of settling in the Kittitas Valley, Mr. Walter Bull met and quickly married Mary Jane Olmsted, but everyone just called her Jenny. She had come west with her father from Ottawa to Illinois in 1871. It was shortly after arriving in the valley that she met Mr. Walter Bull and the wooing process began. The 23rd of November, 1873, found Mr. Bull marrying Miss Jenny Olmsted, with the ceremony being performed by Minister P.B. Chamberlain at the Oriental Hotel in Walla Walla. Since the curation of Kittitas County wouldn't occur for another decade, the wedding was forced to take place a significant distance from Mr. Bull's homestead since the area's then-county seat was in Walla Walla, and that's where all marriage licenses for the massive county were issued. Most of the first non-native settlers to live in the valley could not ignore the vast acres of bunch grass that was laced with dozens of streams of fresh water, making it the perfect place to raise cattle, and that's exactly what everyone did in those early days. Mr. Bull was no exception. He mainly dealt in the business of raising cattle, but he also dabbled with raising dairy cows and selling their milk in addition to raising sheep. Over the next couple of years, he quietly began expanding his land holdings until he was known as the largest private landowner in the entirety of the Kittitas Valley. The actual amount of land Mr. Bull owned varies depending on the source, with numbers running from 1,500 acres to just over 2,000. But all the sources do agree that for years Mr. Bull's ranch was one of the most significant in the region. Walter was a pioneer of a different sort as well, for he was one of the first to irrigate his fields when he diverted water from the nearby Coleman Creek and Yakima River. Mr. Bull is also credited with introducing both the Holstein cow and Timothy hay cultivation to the Kittitas Valley. 
His land did not go to waste, for whatever was not used for the raising of cattle, he grew hay. For he was a smart man and came to realize fast that good hay was always in demand in the valley as well as west of the Cascades. Hence, why he was the first to grow Timothy Hay in the valley. Mr. Bull kept himself busy while he was not expanding his businesses. Between 1873 and 1880, the couple welcomed a daughter and four sons. In order of birth, they were John Bull in 1873, Louis Bull the next year, Cora Bull in 1876, Charles Bull in 1878, and Grant Bull in 1880. The couple's middle child and only daughter, Cora, would later marry a school principal and move to Long Island, New York. Cora Bull Wright would live to the age of 94, passing away in 1970. It's just crazy to think about all of the life-changing technologies that were introduced throughout her lifetime. All four of Mr. Walter Bull's sons remained in the Kittitas Valley for their entire lives. During the entirety of Washington's days as a territory, and even well beyond that into statehood, the process of moving goods, people, and livestock up and over the Cascade Mountains from either direction, but especially from the east, was difficult at best. Many in Washington began to see how Oregon was starting to develop rapidly, much faster than their area was, and they attributed this to the fact that Oregon was much better connected east-west than Washington was, with communication between both sides of the Cascades severely lacking. Dating back to at least the 1860 Congressional Session, which saw a proposal being floated to construct a military road that went from Walla Walla up and over to Seattle, which would pass through the Cascades at Snoqualmie Pass. This would take advantage of an existing trail that would only handle foot and horseback traffic, but to guarantee this plan went nowhere came the Civil War. As the war raged on, there was plenty of back-and-forth discussion in regards to the curation of a suitable road across the mountains. Funds were raised from the public for the purpose, with the summer of 1865 seeing the first section of the road begun. Using $2,500 that was raised in King County, the first section to be built was at Rangers Prairie, which is today's North Bend. The road wasn't much, but someone was actually able to coerce six wagons up and over the pass and convinced folks on both sides of the pass of the potential moneymaker this opportunity presented. $2,000 was allocated in January of 1867 by the Territorial Legislature for further work improving the road and was matched by King County, resulting in a very rough road being finished from the Black River Bridge in King County over Snoqualmie Pass to the Yakima Valley. The following year saw additional funding being allocated by the legislature, and work continued on improving the road. The fall of 1869 finally found the road over the pass being able to handle wagons full of people or goods traveling both directions, as well as the very lucrative business of driving cattle to Puget Sound markets and a lot more money to be had there. By definition only was it a road, and it was still very rough and made for grueling travel. It also meant that it was subjected to long closures over the winter and was an absolute mess once the snow began to melt in the spring. Slides and bridge failures often meant closures when the road was open. The problem of maintenance was ever-present and due to the sheer expense was just not possible for the territory at that time. During the 1870s up to 1883, there were various plans thought of and debated, but none of them really went anywhere, including a lottery that was started by Henry Yesler but was declared illegal before the winner could be selected. A bit shady, Yesler kept most of the money earned in that scheme for himself. The federal government had rejected numerous pleas asking for funding to help maintain the road, and by the mid-1880s the road was in a terrible shape with almost all of the bridges in a sad state of repair. Since little maintenance had been done in over a decade, three Ellensburg men took it upon themselves to set out to try and solve the problem, while at the same time turning a good profit for themselves. These men were Nathan W. Preston, H.M. Bryant, and Mr. Walter A. Bull. These three signed the papers that incorporated the Seattle and Walla Walla Trail and Wagon Road Company. 
The intent of this company was stated in the most broadest of terms in the Certificate of Incorporation. The objects for which this corporation is formed are to construct, maintain, operate, purchase, lease, sell, or dispose of trails and wagon roads together with all bridges, ferries, or other boats necessary thereto throughout the territory of Washington and to collect tolls thereon. The immediate plans of the corporation were much more narrower, though, for they planned on connecting eastern and western Washington Territory by means of trails and wagon roads through the Cascade Mountains via the Snoqualmie Pass. The road that had been built in the late 1860s was the one the three men were interested in tolling in return for the maintenance and improvement of it. This corporation ended up issuing 10,000 shares of stock at $10 a share, making for a total of $100,000 in capital. Mr. Nathan W. Preston, Mr. H. M. Bryant, and Mr. Walter A. Bull were all named trustees. Mr. Bull was named president of the corporation. Though all three of these men had been successful in the past in their own ways, this venture turned out to be very ill-timed. Just a couple of years after incorporating, the Northern Pacific Railroad completed its line between Ellensburg and Cleelum. By 1887, the Cascade Division of the NP was completed and trains finally moved from eastern Washington to Puget Sound over the Cascades, using numerous switchbacks to get over Stampede Pass. For the Stampede Pass Tunnel would not open until the following year and cut out the need for those annoying switchbacks. This meant that the Northern Pacific now served Seattle after it had first bypassed it in favor of making Tacoma the western terminus of its transcontinental railroad. This is a great subject for another episode, so I'll leave it at that until I can get that story committed down to a script. With the railroad going full steam ahead, a wagon path over Snoqualmie was now of significantly diminished importance, and all but spelled the end for the corporation that was headed by Mr. Walter Bull, although it did manage to stay afloat for another year or so. Mr. Bull was still in excellent health and was only 50 years old by this point and was by no means ready for any sort of retirement. It was just eight months after the Wagon Road Corporation formed that the Washington Territorial Legislature created Kittitas County out of a portion of Yakima in November of 1883. Ellensburg was designated the county seat of this newly curated county and Mr. Walter Bull was made the first probate judge of Kittitas. He had no formal legal training at all, though, and he continued to operate his massive ranch and farm, in addition to having a few mining interests up in the Okanagan. Around this time, he also began to expand his business interests, and for a very short amount of time, Mr. Bull became the proprietor of the Valley Hotel in Ellensburg. 1888 saw him expanding even more when he bought a general store in town called Smith Brothers & Company. Ever the frugal man, he saved the old receipt books and letterheads, merely crossing out the Smith Brothers portion and adding his own name below it with a rubber stamp. Unfortunately, the great health that Mr. Walter Bull was blessed with was not shared with his wife Jenny, and she passed away in 1885. Not staying single for too long, Mr. Walter Bull married Rebecca Nilsson Frisbee in February of 1889. She was 18 years his junior. Her previous husband, Benjamin W. Frisbee, was one of the first school teachers in the Kittitas Valley and had passed away the previous year. The couple would welcome two sons, John Alva Bull in 1891 and Leland Levitt Bull in 1893. John Alva Bull operated a Kittitas Valley farm in his later years, and Leland became a successful doctor out west in Seattle. The Panic of 1893 and the ensuing years-long depression that followed was absolutely devastating for Mr. Bull. I'm not going to get into the whole panic and what happened in the state today, but there is an episode in the pipeline in a couple of months from now taking a deep dive into that very topic. And plus, this is Walter Bull's story, otherwise the panic would far overshadow his life. That episode is actually mostly ready to be recorded and will be coming out on the 14th of December. 
Bit of a ways out, I know, but I just wanted to let you all know that I do have that episode ready. Anyways, since the railroads had put the Seattle and Walla Walla Trail and Wagon Road Company out of business, their failure during the Panic of 1893 meant that Walter Bull was left in dire financial straits. Eventually, Mr. Bull lost nearly everything he owned, with even his huge ranch being sold off to pay his massive amount of debts. He and his wife Rebecca and their two very young sons were left with only the clothes on their backs and little else. Due to all the stress that this must have brought to him, Mr. Bull began to suffer from poor health, something he had mostly managed to avoid in his life. Everything he had worked so hard to build up over nearly 30 years was wiped out and taken from him. The only assets he was able to retain through the economic turmoil following 1893 was his mining claims that were located up in the Okanagan. For both his physical and financial health, Mr. Bull decided to travel up to these claims and begin to work them, hoping to get back some of his staggering losses. He stayed with an old friend at Wild Horse Springs near the town of Loomis. This friend, Henry Livingston, would actually be lucky enough to live to the ripe old age of 108. He was born in 1820 and died in 1928. What a remarkable life that must have been. It was at the home of Mr. Livingston that Walter Alvador Bull passed away at the age of 60 years old on the 4th of March, 1898. His young wife, Rebecca, then traveled to the ranch near Loomis after hearing of her husband's untimely death. It was from Cooley City that she sent a telegram to her son, John, telling him that father died March 4th, cannot bring body home, wire relations east. It's unknown why exactly she couldn't return to Ellensburg with the body of Walter Bull, whether it was due to some sort of weather condition or the fact that the family was just simply too broke to afford the cost it took to get him back home. Mr. Walter Bull was laid to rest on the Livingston Ranch. He did not lay at rest on the Livingston Ranch for long, though, and he eventually made his way back home in maybe 1889 or 1900. It's unclear as to exactly when the move took place. There is an undated newspaper clipping that is missing the paper's logo, but it's thought to have been from the Loomiston Journal, which was a very popular newsletter in the Loomis area during the latter half of the 1890s. And it reads in part, Henry Livingston of Ellensburg, accompanied by E.M. Thayer, Vice President of the Puget Sound Marble and Granite Company of Seattle, came to Riverside last Sunday. The object of their visit was to exhume the corpse of Walter A. Bull, buried on the ranch of Mr. Livingston in Wild Horse Spring Cooley, northwest of here. The corpse was exhumed last Monday, and on Tuesday, Mr. Livingston and Mr. Thayer started out for Ellensburg. Once Walter Bull's remains reached town, he was reburied there at Oddfellows Cemetery, beneath a monument that marked his status as a successful early pioneer of the Kittitas Valley, which was paid for by his sons and his good friend, Mr. Henry Livingston. His first wife, Jenny, is buried right alongside him. If you're ever in the area, the Oddfellow Cemetery is a nice spot to stretch your legs and pay your respects to some of the people that helped to build Ellensburg and the greater Kittitas Valley. With the passing of Mr. Walter Bull, the Kittitas Valley had lost one of its leading and founding citizens, but the valley did not lose the Bulls. Five of the six sons that Mr. Bull had with his two wives stayed in the area and most engaged in farming and ranching, just like their father had done before them. Today, there is a Bull Road in Ellensburg, along with numerous descendants of Walter Bull still living in the area. Before I wrap up this episode, I wanted to let everyone know that for episode 50, Can You Believe It?, I originally stopped the show at first with only three episodes. I never imagined I'd get to 50. Anyways, starting with episode 50, I will be looking back at the very first episode I very roughly put together, and will be doing a much deeper and more accurate dive into all three of the fires that I covered. First off, I will be starting with the Great Spokane Fire and how the history of the Davenport Hotel fascinatingly relates to it. 
Then I will be focusing on the Ellensburg Fire of 1889 and also doing a look at the general history of the town. Wrapping up will be a two-part episode looking back at the Great Seattle Fire with the second part of the finale going in-depth into how the city bounced back and rebuilt following the massive blaze. So look for all that to start in two weeks with the release of episode 50. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include the Washington State University Libraries, Central Washington University Archives, HistoryLink.org, Ancestry.com, the Ellensburg Dawn of March 18, 1898, the Yakima Herald Republic, FindAGrave.com, Elwood Evans's 1889 History of the Pacific Northwest, Oregon and Washington, Volume 2, the Freedmen's Bureau website, and an illustrated history of Klickitat, Yakima, and Kittitas counties with an outline of the early history of the state of Washington. Thank you for listening to episode 48, Mr. Walter Bull of the Kittitas Valley. Episode 49 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hoh. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and moclips and copalis where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.